Welcome everybody to the December 2012 Licensee Conference Call. I'm Mark Horseman. On the call with me from the Manager Tools team are Winnie Lord and Danny Martin. And for those of you who have trouble mixing up your numbers, today's your day. 12, 12, 12. We have great fun doing these. We have a bunch of great calls and some that are a bunch of great questions and some that are irritating but necessary to answer, so I'll answer them. Uh, so here we go. First question. Um, how do you know when it's time to leave a job? I, I have to say this is a tough question. It's a very tough question for us because it's hard for us to know without knowing you personally well. Um, we, we don't know how you, the questioner, would define your phrases such as more challenging or tightening or hard part. Now look guys, you have to be aware that um, the market has been not great for the last four years. Um, and it's not unusual if you're at lower levels to not feel that in a company that had been doing well, that company may in fact have gone through the first 18 months to two years of a downturn reasonably well, and you may be in an industry that lags the broader market. Um, other, other industries lead the market uh, and tend to crash sooner rather than later and then generally rebound sooner rather than later. Some industries are market leaders and some are laggards. Neither is good or bad, it just affects when the tightening affects your particular company or your particular industry. Some companies in some industries don't tend to get hit as hard because they're better managed. Some co companies that are less well managed tend to get hurt early and often and stay in the depths longer. It, that's just a function of um, divergence of human capital, one supposes. Um, and in this case, uh, it would be helpful for us to know your precise role and your industry and your company for those reasons, even folks, even if we wouldn't necessarily publish that. Okay, that said, our general thoughts about leaving a company based on the kind of existential issues I think you're talking about here is a simple four-step process. Get your resume ready, do a search, compare your options, those are the three leaving steps, and the one staying step, which happens at the same time of, as all of those, because you don't know what you do, you're gonna do until you compare your options, is to deliver results. Okay, here's the big issue here, and this is, I, I love this question, uh, even though it's a tough one. The problem with these situations, in my experience, and Wendy and I have talked about this many times, is that we make a false comparison we compare our old job from a couple of years ago, the one that we used to like, the one that we used to be committed to, the one we used to be passionate about, to our now job, which worries us and makes us wonder about our future and wonder about our opportunities and wonder about our relationships with our bosses that seem to be strained and may just be because your bosses still think you're wonderful, but they're busy bailing on a ship that's struggling a little bit. But, but, but the fact is, all, all careers have ups and downs. Um, in fact, guys, I have to tell you something. Some companies, I do it, have a history of looking at people's resumes to see if someone who's been through a has been through a downturn, a market downturn, while staying with the same employer. The idea is the is that the person who always leaves when the going gets hard. In other words, and by the way, I'm not saying you're in this situation at all, questioner, but. The person who always leaves when the going gets hard is going to do the same thing in his next role and, and that's something that would tend to demote that person in terms of my level of interest. Now, I'm not saying you should stay to the bitter end. Um, there is a time to leave and that's hard to say. It depends on the individual person. 
the, so the comparison of old job to now job is a bad one, but it's for many people who aren't current in the marketplace, it's the one they have to make. The comparison we ought to be making is your present role to other present roles that are available to you now. Now you might say, well, I don't know what those are. Exactly right. So it's too early for you to be thinking about leaving because you don't have anything to go to. There's no place to leave to unless you're willing to take a job that anybody could take and generally we don't assume that's the case. And so knowing what is available to you now is gonna depend upon your search, okay? Um, that said, if you've been questioning your role and your commitment to it for some time, you if you're working for a fairly uh, uh, insightful boss, it wouldn't surprise us if your focus on results has wavered a little bit because you're thinking about other things as opposed to delivering results while you're at work. We're not saying you're wrong. We're saying it tends to be a blind spot, a scotoma for people that when they start questioning, they don't realize that their performance tends to plateau. So look, the underlying rule, really the first rule in this, even though we list it last, is make sure you deliver your results as you start considering your real options, real options, the actual options that exist in the marketplace, okay? So that happens constantly throughout the time you're worth you are. And based on your question, you used, to, you used to feel good about your role, okay? The second thing you do is get your resume ready. Hopefully, hopefully you know we have plenty of guidance on that. Um, and get the resume workbook. I think it's $25, $29, something like that. Uh, it's very worth it. Uh, the, sec the third thing to do is to do a search. Okay? Find out what your marketability is. Consider yourself as being open to opportunities. And in the last question, I think, of this, this uh, uh, licensee call, we have somebody asked that. I'll list some of those things. Although we have podcasts about searches and marketability and how to network and how to build your network and so on. But then what you do is as your search progresses and you get a sense of the market and how you fit into it, and whether there are opportunities equivalent to or better than yours while considering your goodwill, which I'll come back to in a second, then you can see what you want to do. So really, the answer to your question is start looking. Be open to opportunities and, and figure out what kind of marketability you have. Now is the time to do it because you're not going to be good right away when you start and the market's going to improve in the next year or two. And then you'll be able to compare apples to apples, a real job, what would be close to an opportunity, an offer versus the job you already have. And if you go out there and you try to find something that would be interesting and that would be comparable and you can't find it, it's silly to think I want to leave unless you're willing to consider again virtually any job. Okay. Um, so that, that's what we recommend to do. I just want to make a mention about goodwill. When we talk about goodwill in a job search, what we mean is you have an ability at the company you're at to get things done that you will not have when you go to a new company. You won't have the, the, uh, the relationships. You won't know who to call in finance. You won't know who to call in IT. You won't have a friend in the chairman's office or whatever it is. All that goodwill is lost. That goodwill is grease that makes your job easier. If you think your job now is an 80 on a 100 scale and you're going to a job that you think of as an 80 on the 100 scale, you are making a false comparison because that other job is probably a 70 on the 100 scale because you are probably worth 10 points of goodwill in the job you have because things are easier. When you go into the company, you discover it's not as easy to get things done here. That's right because you don't have relationships built up. So don't hesitate, don't, don't fail to include goodwill in your search parameters. Okay, next question, number two. 
What's more of Mike's backstory? Okay, well, just so you know, I drafted an answer, sent it to Mike, and Mike edited it for me. This is the first time we've ever done that in nearly eight years of this company and probably 10 years of working together. So here we go. So Mike and I went to the military academy together, graduated in 1982. Um, no Navy jokes, please. Um, we knew each other there a little bit, though there's only 800 people in the class, so everybody knows everybody, at least in the, our class we did. Um, we were stationed together in Hawaii as Army officers for three years in the same unit. We became close friends then. Uh, I got out before he did. Mike got out of the Army by reconnecting with me, and I helped him get hired by Mobile Oil in an IT role. Okay. He later moved to MCI in the Northern Virginia area, and he became an executive there. I consulted to him when he was an executive, and we agreed that we wanted to work together in the management and leadership space. Mike left there when his pension was ruined by the disastrous takeover by the still-jailed Bernie Ebers, and of course you probably know them as Worldcom. Um, while he was at what became Worldcom, Mike became disenchanted with the direction of the company and he couldn't give 100% and realized if he couldn't give 100%, he needed to, he needed to find a place in the world where he could. It wasn't fair to the company and it surely wasn't fair to him to remain. Well, at the time, he'd always wanted to be a business owner. There's an enormous difference between business, being a business owner and a business leader and executive. Uh, and he was approached by a friend of his to own a significant portion of an Italian restaurant chain to serve as a CFO. He had no intent at the time to become a lifelong restaurateur when he left MCI, but he thought it'd be fun to help out and figure out what his next step was and perhaps build up a fairly significant equity stake. Um, during the time he was doing that, iPods were invented. And if you don't know the story, it was Mike's idea that Manager Tools Concepts, basically the things I had been teaching with my consulting firm for years, would best be shared through podcasts. And, and I'll tell you guys, he was right. Over and over and over again, when Mike and I have thought about things, he's been right more often than I have about some of the things we've done, big picture steps regarding the company. And basically, when he said podcast, I said, sure, I'll do it. And then I asked him, what's a podcast? It was funny. I didn't have an iPod at the time. Uh, and so he decided, well, we can afford it for a little while, and that was his next step. And what he'll tell you is that's his last step, and it certainly is my last step. Um, Mike's career principles are pretty straightforward, guys. He's easy to know relative to this, and he, he'll tell you, that, and, and luckily, he and I feel the same way about this. Uh, when he's followed these uh, principles, he's been successful and happy, and when he hasn't, bad things happen although he's never been fired, and he, I think he wants to rub that in that I have. His first principle is, and, and of course my response to that since I have the microphone is, ask him where he graduated in the class, and then subtract one, and that's where I graduated in our class. Um, so first, love what you do. That's his first principle. If you don't love it, go find something you do love. Find something that work, where work doesn't seem like work, but it rather seems like a calling. Too many hours are spent at work to not love what you do, and Mike and I love what we're doing here. That we've never wavered in thinking this is the greatest role, job, opportunity we've ever had, and I've had nothing but great jobs in my life. Secondly, serve other people, whether it be customers, associates, teammates, your boss, whatever. Deliver values to others in greater proportion than what you get paid, and you will be rewarded significantly. And if you serve yourself first, you end up last in line. His third point is work for a great boss, or he, he politely puts in, or with a great partner from whom you can learn. If you don't know Mike as the CEO of the company, I'm not. Um, 
she, she, your boss doesn't have to be easy or non-demanding, but rather truly interested in making you better and in your success, even if she is demanding and unbending. And Mike tells the story, has told the story many times with one of his bosses, Louise Charles, who really made him enormously better. Most of any pain Mike's had in his professional career has been from violation of the simple rule about working for a great boss. Uh, I remember when he worked for a guy named Mike Callahan at MCI. Same thing. Great boss. And I knew it because uh, Mike talked about him. And Mike looks back at his professional history, says the only time he's been unhappy is when he violated one of those three rules, and he's never been unhappy when he's followed them. So there you go. Mike's written his first podcast. Number three, what is the status of the effective manager book? Written and unpublished. The firm, our firm, Manager Tools, is not ready for the potential growth our book, my book, might cause. Next year, faithful friends. (laughs) And Wendy, who chooses the questions. I hate these questions. And number four, but it's easy. It saves us a bunch of time. Um, number four. By the way, I think we only have 16 questions. Apparently, people assume that since we ran out of space last time, we, I think we got much more than 20 questions last time. I think people got disenchanted. So, will I post a photo of my custom travel trench coat? Yes. In fact, I think Danny will forward you to a picture taken yesterday of me in a hotel room. Um, traveling against my doctor's wishes um, of me in the trench coat. Uh, I had that trench coat made for me at Burberry on old Bond Street in London. Folks, if you don't know this, there's a general rule that all gentlemen have a trench coat. It's what a gentleman wears as a raincoat over a suit. You don't call it a raincoat. You call it a trench. You don't even call it a trench coat. You just call it a trench or my trench. Um, and, And you can wear it at other times as well, but certainly you would wear it over a suit. Uh, a suit is wool and generally not terribly water repellent, and a wet wool suit all day at work is intemperate uh, relative to your coworkers. And if you don't know it, guys, there's an old rule that gentlemen don't carry umbrellas because they would scare the horses. You're welcome to disregard that rule if you like. I, I don't. I don't carry an umbrella, generally speaking, unless I have someone with me that might need it. Uh, The problem for me with trench coats is I've always wanted one, never had one, had a long wool coat. Um, uh, The problem with me is because I'm tall, I'm 6'4", the typical trench doesn't work terribly well for me. It catches me much too high on my leg to really be effective. So I asked for a custom one two feet longer. Uh, Five years ago when I bought it, it was 3,000 British pounds. And it was the last one that Burberry made for their bespoke shop. Uh, it is absolutely my favorite garment of all time. It outranks flip-flops, which are pretty significant to me, and bespoke suits, which I love. Um, it's that wonderful. Many people, when they see it, think it is reminiscent of a cowboy duster, a very long coat that cowboys wear in the saddle. Uh, I, I don't deny that. I didn't particularly choose it for that reason, but a lot of people say that. I get more questions about that coat by men on planes than anything else other than my luggage sometimes. Um, They want to know where I got it Um, and how is it so long? And I told them, I tell them it's custom. It's funny, men ask me about the coat, women ask about my socks. Uh, It also has a lovely removable cashmere lining. Um, And I rarely wear the cashmere lining because it's quite warm as it is. Uh, And you'll notice, I think in the picture, the, the collar is flipped up. That is not an affectation. That is how trench coats are worn. Uh, It has extra pockets in it for my sunglasses. I generally like 
to wear sunglasses during the daytime. It has pockets within pockets for my writing pen. It has a pocket for an iPad, which if it's custom, you can get anything you want. It has a pocket specifically for gloves. It does not have a pocket for a wallet because a gentleman's wallet always goes in a suit coat pocket for security. I think it looks good based on the number of people who ask me questions. That's not the reason I bought it. I bought it because it's fabulously effective and it's actually fun to wear. And folks, gentlemen, never, ever wear a black trench. You're not a Nazi. Um, and unless you know the difference between braces and suspenders, you shouldn't wear a blue trench either. Um, I talked to a guy once who didn't know that all the names of the French design houses are not the names of designers, they're the names of the founders. Uh, if you don't know stuff like that, you've got no business choosing a midnight blue trench coat. You should choose a tan trench coat. A Burberry, a London Fog would be fine. An Aqua Scutum is, would be a lovely choice. Expensive, but they have fine ones at Men's Warehouse in the United States at very reasonable prices that work wonderfully. But if you're just building your wardrobe, a gabardine tan trench coat is a core part of your uh, attire. Maybe not if you live in Texas, where I live, but I travel everywhere. Okay, enough of that. Next question, number five. I love this question about development and coaching. Okay, now I don't want to oversimplify the answer because I do love it, but, but this answer is going to seem really brutally obvious. I don't mean, I don't want to simplify, I don't want to oversimplify it and have anyone draw the conclusion that I'm being simplistic because I'm being dismissive. I love this question. Gosh, I love the idea that an organization is saying, we want you to develop outside of work. Brilliant. Okay. Um, Maybe, in my mind, because I rarely see an organization-wide solution when I wrestle with problems like these, um, I mean, meaning I don't believe they work. I don't see organizational-wide solutions work. Um, we, we always, here at Manager Tools, this is not organization tools. It's not company tools. It's not corporate tools. It's manager tools. The only way your company is going to change is if managers and individuals change their behavior. So our focus is on the individual behaviors. Um, we could make a ton more money selling to companies, but we would also break our hearts doing work that didn't make a difference. Um, I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, we think about getting an individual manager to change his or her behavior to make different things happen. And if individual managers change their behavior and different outcomes occur, then the organization ends up with a change. If we can can't craft a solution built around the one who has to enact it, who, which is always the manager and their individual contributor directs, it's much more likely to work, in other words, to bear fruit, to have some sort of ROI that's <laughs> at least marginally positive. So in this case, I would institute a couple of managerial behaviors. First, I would screen, I would hire in advance for a self-development behavioral pattern. You may be doing this, but it's not clear to me from the question. And if you are, well done you, okay? If you're interviewing kids out of school, ask every, every kid, make it a standard. And, and now, now if you're having people interview however they want, then you can just ignore this because that's crazy. Um, you're taking crazy pills and you're expecting good results. Um, but you would ask them, what extracurricular reading have you done in the past two years and why? Now, I would, I would look askance seriously at no reading or no non-school mandated development. The kid who says, I'm too busy with school, it has a different mindset about his growth and development as a human being than the kid who says, well, I read... 
the Twilight series, look, you know, I'll talk about that in a second, or, you know, I read Atlas Shrugged, or I read Mein Kampf, or I read Das Kapital, and you say to him, you're an engineer, why would you read Das Kapital? Because that stuff matters, man, and he'd be right. Um, I would be pleased, though I wouldn't be satisfied with fiction, like the Twilight series, I would be particularly pleased with, particularly pleased with fiction about, say, Jack Reacher, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but, but I'd love to see fiction reading. My senior year at the academy, every cadet I knew that was my classmate, this was 1981, the fall of 81, when Hunt for Red October came out. Now, admittedly, it was a military book, but it was breathtaking, and all of us read it, um, to, the, to the detriment of our schoolwork as well. I, nobody cared. It was, we had to read it. Um, and I read constantly. I must have read, oh God, hundreds, maybe even a thousand books while I was at school. Um, now, I wasn't great about, about development, but I read the New York Times every day because they made me. Uh, Mike did too because they made him. Um, I would be satisfied with an answer with reading or work that the, kid, that the person said was for development outside of class that led to articulatable lessons. I'd love that. I'd say, this is my kind of kid. Don't take offense with the word kid, guys. I'm old. Second thing I would do, so I'd start doing that immediately. Okay. Second, I would evaluate managers, and, and by extension, def, by definition, all directs, formally, on their reviews, weighted however you want, it can't be more than 10 or 15%, on their own self-development. And guys, this is a really simple concept that a lot of people miss. And of course, the more complex your corporate reviews are, about which we have a question later, um, the more complex your reviews are, the harder it is to get anything on there because there's just an awful, awful process by which things get disapproved because HR controls it. I love HR. I really do. Um, um, if you look at something, if you really believe something is important, you ought to evaluate people on it. If you look at something and you tell yourself it's really important that you believe it's a lever that ought to be making a difference in the firm, and then you can't justify putting it on a resume because there are too many, or too, on a review because there are too many other things on there, then it really isn't that important. But if it is, then evaluate managers on what their directs learned on their own and evaluate everyone on what they self-developed at. And look, our coaching tool is probably overkill for many professionals, but I'll tell you, if I was working in your firm doing what you guys do, I'd argue that for young people, more structure provided by the manager would help enormously, and the coaching tool doesn't require more than five minutes a week from the manager. Um, and after six months, if you hired somebody and they're saying, well, I'm really happy to be here, and then you say, look, you need to start doing some own, your own self-development, and they're like, well, I don't really want to. I want to start my job. No, that's part of the job here. We expect you to develop outside of work. We want well-rounded people. In six months, you're going to know whether or not somebody's going to do it. And then you have an opportunity, if you've rolled out the Trinity and so on, to give them feedback as well. And I would. Um, and, and I know there are too many managers who are like, well, he's doing good in the one thing I want. And that's a question of what's important to the organization. I, I like the fact the organization is doing what they're doing. And I think I, I wish more organizations would strengthen their development process, have reading done outside of work. One of the first things I had to do as a lieutenant in the Army when I was stationed at Fort Sill, well, actually while Mike was there before we went over to, to Hawaii together, um, I had to read books. I was in a reading group, and we had more senior officers talking about the books, we were, and we, had to re we were required to read the chapters and talk about the chapters every week. And if you didn't do it, you were not professional, and that's a quick road to the bottom in the Army. Okay, uh, number six. 
Scrum teams, how do I effectively manage? In my experience, guys, I found that no direct, none, in these matrix-like structures that happened around project-intensive organizations, IT organizations, technical organizations, has any doubt at all that their direct boss, the one who evaluates them, even if that direct boss isn't in charge of their scrum and their agile work tasks, is by far the most important person relative to their career. They may not know that in the first three months, but pretty soon they learn it. So the first thing we have to do here is ask ourselves, what would we be normally doing to manage these folks? Okay. Then we adapt how we would do those managing things to the nature of the schedules and the work habits that we're observing that our directs are engaged in. So I have five suggestions. Number one, have one-on-ones. You can't abandon your efforts to have a relationship with your folks just because the work they're doing is for someone else. Because guys, look, it's really not for someone else. It's for the firm. And your, listen carefully to this sentence, your evaluation of your direct is by definition the firm's evaluation of that direct. And that's one of the reasons why I hate nature organizations so much. Oh, did I just say that in a loud voice? The reason I hate it, yes, I said that, is because it's hard enough for us to have one boss, and I think I actually talked about that in, in last week's things, I think. I think. Um, one of the reasons I hate project and matrix organizations, it's hard enough to have one boss, let alone two. And, and the, the Scrum and Agile leaders, the team leads, or whatever we call them nowadays, um, you have to track them down as a manager and say, how'd my guy do? Oh, he was fine. Really? Fine? He comes and works for you every day and all you got is fine? You know, you're really, you've got no business being a manager. And then the guy says, he literally says, I've watched a guy say this. Well, that's why I have this job because I don't want to manage. Man, tell you what, you don't, you, you, secretly I always wished to be a VP in the company when those things were said. So well, I can solve that problem. You're not a manager anymore <laughs> of anything. You can go be an individual contributor somewhere else. Go to work for our competitors and make us both better. <laughs> um, number two, ask more questions. Um, a lot of your directs aren't coming to you for answers because they're not working on work for you. And those questions and answers would be giving you insight into their work skills and their weaknesses and their successes and their challenges. So be proactive in asking, what are you working on? And you know, when somebody says, if they're 25 or 35 or 45, usual stuff, look at them and go, what am I, smoking crack? Does that mean when you ask for your review, I'll say, yeah, usual. No, what are you working on? Be specific, give examples. <laughs> What deadlines are you facing? Will you meet your deadline? And by the way, any answer other than yes immediately means they're not gonna. How are you communicating your progress on your scrum team, on your agile team? How are you communicating your successes? How are you communicating issues to your team lead? Walk me through each of the relationships you have with the people on your team. And guys, technical people give this short shrift, and then they seem astounded when their lack of relationships hurt their career because their team lead says, he does his work, but nobody likes him. And the guy is saying, I thought I was supposed to deliver results. Well, no, you got to have results and relationships both. Number three, ask for reporting. Expect that you will be copied on emails of non-trivial significance that are related to the work they do. Explain that if they want your help with things, and they will periodically, you're gonna need them to provide you the raw material in order to do what you need to do for them. 
Tell them to expect a monthly review of their work quality and timeliness and their relationships. Number four, talk more frequently about quarterly goals and annual goals and development opportunities. Matrix organizations tear people away from the boss that would be reminding them of this and then they don't do it and then they cry and they wonder why they can't get a big bonus. It's because they didn't achieve 30% of the bonuses weight, which is doing their developmental goals, meeting their developmental goals, okay? You need to talk more frequently about it in order to have them keep them in mind so they don't try to cram a year's worth of work into the last quarter, which is literally the joke that is true. You know, in all humor, there's truth. And in quarter three, it's like, oh, I haven't done anything. Yeah, well, I thought you were an adult. Um, now, look, guys, number five. Yeah, I know. Some of you are going, gosh, that's intrusive. Particularly to those people who, quote, don't want or need to be managed, boss. I really don't want to be managed. I don't, what they say is, I don't need to be managed. What they're saying is, I don't want to be managed. Well, tough shit, okay? Um, the world's a tough place, and I'm your boss, and I'm going to manage you. Because at the end of the year, I have to feel ethically good about the review I give you. And that requires me being more hands-on than most managers. Somebody recently just sent me a thing about how micromanagement is okay. And then what he described as micromanagement, I would describe as a fairly light touch. Okay? Um, no, not wanting or needing to be managed is a pipe dream. It's usually a dodge. Uh, your folks that do that, they'll be fine until they're not fine. And then, by God, you're expected to move heaven and earth for that person even though you don't know them that well, you don't know their switch situation, you don't know whom to assuage on their team that's been giving them problems. That's not how good organizations work. You are not constricting someone's freedom to be themselves or to do good work by asking them to engage in simple organizational efficiencies like talking more frequently, asking for reporting, asking for questions, asking more questions, and having one-on-ones. This is a question that I get a lot of pushback on. If the questioner wants to send me more insight and say you're wrong i'm happy to listen and then laugh and then try to help you further <laughs> um number seven how can i translate the trinity in a shorter time frame my first answer is however you like good luck with that <laughs> i get this question more than anything else it's irritating that said i understand you're in a seasonal business look folks we don't have any data on it and because we don't have any data, and I don't know what kind of work you're talking about, and I don't know if these seasonal folks are kids, are folks with some knowledge of organizational rhythms, have a particular specialty, are we talking about department store sales clerks right before Christmas, or are we talking about the high season rainforest uh, in, a, in a forest where we're cutting down trees and some technical expertise is required? I don't know if the season you're talking about is five weeks long or 10 weeks long, which to me would make a difference. That said, if it were me, and I didn't have any data, which I don't, and we don't recommend things that we don't have data on, and I wanted to accelerate the rollout of the Trinity, here's what I would do. And by the way, I would keep track of my results compared to other people and my previous results to see whether or not it was worthy to continue it, because I don't know whether it would or not. I'd start one-on-ones immediately the first week. I'd buy a license for all my managers, and folks, hopefully you know I'm not, not trying to sell you one. We suck at marketing here. And frankly, in this scenario, it'd be my money anyway. Um, I'd copy some of, some of the core Trinity guidance from show notes into a specific slide presentation or a document. 
I'd have a special orientation for my seasonal workers where I talked about the people, the work, and the way we do things here at our company, Acme Corporation. In that last part, when I talked about the way we do things, I'd tell them about one-on-ones. I, I talked to a guy, manager recently and said, Mark, I don't know what to do. I have a young kid that just started, and I said I'll be meeting with him every week. And the kid immediately raised his hand and said, can I get out of that? And he said, I didn't know what to say. I said, what did you say? He said, well, we'll talk later. I said, you should have said, yeah. And the kid said, I'd like out of it. He said, and, you, and then you would have said, there's the door. I just, I'm just boggled. I mean, whoever let that guy through the door for being so stupid to ask a question like that in public of their brand new boss when they haven't had a chance to make a difference yet. Unbelievable. That's just me. Um, so I'd tell them about one-on-ones. I'd spend maybe 50 minutes. And I dictate when they do them rather than taking the time to send out a request. If they're new and they don't have a calendar and I'm hiring a bunch of people, a bunch of people starting at the same time, I'd say this is when your one-on-ones are. Uh, a lot of people say seasonal staff or hourly and I don't know. I tell you, the hourly uh, thing with me just holds no water. I- I'm welcome. You're welcome to send me your schedule and tell me why your schedule is different. But I've been in virtually every organization. I told somebody recently that I've been in the coal mines in Kentucky and West Virginia. And somebody said, you can't do one-on-ones in a coal mine. I'm like, you guys have meetings like three times a week, three times a day down there talking about where you are and where the vein is and what are you doing and who's on what shift and what are we doing here and what about that? And then 15 minutes spent talking about what lunch you want to have brought down. Um, so, I, I, you know, my feeling is if a guy's working eight hours a day or he's part-time, he's working four hours a day, um, you can take... 20 minutes or 30 minutes and do one-on-one once a week and it'll work. And, and frankly, they're not all that efficient anyway. So it's not like you're taking off somebody off the line who's just producing billions of dollars. Uh, and the investment you make in those weeks, it will pay off. Every half an hour you spend each week will give you more return the next week. Um, then what I would do at some point, I'd use the starter feedback model for them. That's what the starter feedback model is for. Okay. Some people will change, some won't. I, the starter feedback model does not include step four, by the way. But it does focus on behavior, which is the way to do it. Because particularly if you're talking about young people, they're gonna be sensitive. Then what I would do is I'd pick the best people and convince them to come back as non-seasonal folks because you have a fabulous talent screen when you hire seasonal folks. Now, regarding seasonal staff content, we don't have any seasonal staff content. We don't, because the scope of that market can't justify for us, a 10-person firm, any focus, uh, which would be away from all the other managers in the world that are not, not, that are not seasonal. And we're not gonna be done with all the stuff we have to do already before I die. So we don't have time, and it's a choice we're making. And we are sorry for that, but frankly, the vast majority of stuff we recommend would work. And this is probably the only modification that I would recommend in the interest of time. Next question, number eight, certified trainer. Good question. We have talked about this this process or this offering many times in the past. Mike and I have talked about it. And it's in our future. There's no question. Uh, But then so is the book and has been for a while. Uh, You know, guys, we, we suffer from really caring about what we do. And we have decided that the great companies of the world We want to be one of those, and we're willing to wait 100 years to do it. Um, I think Google is a really awesome company. I think Apple is really great. Um, But in the history of the world, no offense, Procter & Gamble and GE and Siemens, and for even some people who don't like to hear things like banks, like Royal Bank of Scotland or Goldman Sachs, they're better. Uh, And I think Google will make a bigger difference in the world. I mean, it certainly has in my life in Goldman Sachs, even though I've worked at Goldman Sachs. Um, But... 
we want to be here for a long, 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 long time because there are going to be a lot of managers here for a long, 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 long time. Uh, so it's in our future. Uh, Mike and I have always seen this as being more important once the book comes out. Um, that's really a system-wide response, if you will. It seems to me like you could simply... like My recommendation about this is that rather than thinking about certified trainer as a way for you to train internally at your company, what you could do is license our stuff on a per head basis and depending upon your organization, you could in fact present our stuff in certain situations if the attendees had a license. We have clients do that all the time. It's a big part of our business. People say, I want to train 200 people and um, I, I can't afford Mark to come in, but I'm going to buy license for everybody and I want one of my people to deliver the stuff. Um, and it's actually usually simpler than most people think. Now, you might think, wow, there's a loophole there. He's saying that I could potentially present his stuff to people if I buy licenses for them. Yeah, you could. But you remember, you better be good if you're going to present my life's work. <laughs> um, I'm just saying. Okay, next. Number nine. How, do, how much effectiveness does a team lose working remotely? A crap load. A ton unless the manager is really, really good, okay? Now this question relates to smaller firms, so there's no question that manager tools team would be better, all things being equal, co-located, because all teams, all things being equal, even though things are never equal, all teams are better co-located, but A, there are facilities costs which might offset the benefit in a small firm where cash is dear, B, the first 10 people any small firm hires are more important than the next 100, all things being equal. And to confine, confine those first 10 people to a location-specific area is, in my opinion, risky. I would rather think of the area as broad as possible and get the 10 best people I can, which is what we're doing at Manager Tools. Okay? And C... At Manager Tools, we're better than any other team that I know of, be just because we're not, because we're geniuses, because we're really good managers. You can't work here if I don't believe you'd be a really, really good manager, because otherwise the company can't grow. So we're okay being not co-located because we screen for management abilities, period. So the question is choose. You, you can build a great team virtually and manage as if your life depended upon it, because you're going to have to, okay? I mean, look, Danny works for me, and I won't see her again for three months, okay? Um, or if you're not sure you're that good as a manager, and most managers are not because co-location is easier, co-locate until you're good enough a manager that you can start managing people at a distance. Hope that helps. Okay. Number 10. Oh, I love this question. Nobody asked me this question. This question, what are the key... I'm going to read the question because it's so beautiful. What are the key elements of a performance review system? This is the question we want. We never get it, except tonight. And the reason we want it is because if I tell you the key elements, you can then put those key elements into any damn form you want, and it will work. And so, I'm going to say the key elements slowly, and I'm going to say them twice. Um, because I'm not going to explain them. I'm simply going to tell you, I'm going to answer your question, and I'm going to allow you to put them together. And here they are. Past success. Past mistakes. Goals and guidance 
for next year, handwritten, one side, one page, based on anniversary of hire and not calendar year, no quantification in the form of numerical rankings of skills, evaluations every time your role changes or your boss changes, though never less than 90 days in a single review period. So if you have a boss and then he changes in 30 days, you don't get a review for that 30 days. It's considered non-rated time. And managers are not eligible for their review until their direct reviews have been completed and approved by their boss and delivered back to the direct. I'm gonna say that again. I love this question. Past successes. Past mistakes, goals and guidance for next year, handwritten, stop trying to make it pretty, one page, there's not much more that most managers can put on there that's true that isn't boilerplate, which is wasteful. Um, I probably should add in here candid, but it's probably a bridge too far. Uh, but if you have one page and you do this other stuff, it's unlikely you'll get lack of candor based on anniversary of hire and not calendar year, no quantification in the form of numerical rankings of skills. What a joke. Everybody always gets fives. Evaluations every time your role changes or your boss changes, but you can never have a review that's official that, that you have less than 90 days in role or boss. And managers aren't eligible for review until the direct reviews have been completed, approved by their boss and delivered. If you ask me, the form is a piece of paper with a line down the middle, vertically, and another line horizontally about a fourth of the way up from the bottom of the page. The top left section is for successes in the past year. The top right section is for failures or weaknesses or opportunities going forward. And the bottom, if you erase the vertical line, if the vertical line stops at the horizontal line, at the bottom, you write their goals and guidance for next year. That's it. It's, it's absolutely genius. Um, and there's no kabuki theater around it either. Number 11, how can I get more responsibility? <laughs> uh, you can't, at least not with the kind of verbal persuasion you're talking about. Don't nag. We, and I speak for all executives, hate, and I speak for all executives, nagging. Okay, make your point and be done. If your boss doesn't respond to your point, either she didn't hear you or she doesn't agree with you, meaning she doesn't like your point or she thinks you're wrong, okay? Enough of those and you'll know which is true. I don't, you know. If it's the former, your boss doesn't respond and she didn't hear you, leave. And if it's the latter, reassess. Maybe you're wrong. And you know what? If you and your boss disagree on something, your boss is going to win usually. <coughs> Excuse me. Deliver more results on your core responsibilities is the big part of the answer. And when I say more results, I mean results beyond what may be on your brief. The smaller part, and perhaps more valuable to your situation, is to deliver on things not in your job description that you believe are necessary for future growth or capability growth. Maybe it's cost reduction, even though you're more, you don't have to do that. Maybe it's new product development. Maybe it's reorging your team, even though your boss hasn't said you have to do it. 
It's literally creating new work that will deliver more value for the organization now or in the future. Maybe it's changing whom you hire. Maybe it's getting your own folks promoted, which is of course a great opportunity to improve the performance of the people, improve the caliber of the people you had by hiring differently. But too many managers think doing what they're supposed to do is enough. I did my job, I did all of it. Why can't I get promoted? Because look, if you're at a big company, I read somewhere that Walmart to grow 10% had to add a General Electric to the company next year. I mean, what a joke. It's like, that's impossible, right? No, it's not. That's what the CEO's job is. And you can't, you can't just say, we're going to sell more of the existing widgets. You have to come up with new widgets and new, new markets and new techniques and so on. Uh, innovation in your results is a way to grow your future responsibilities. And that means expanding your thinking about your role. And questioner, if you want to tell me what your role is in more detail and understand the industry and what you're, you know, in specifics, and then you want some suggestions, send me an email. How does Mark, number 12, how does Mark recommend implementing the disk? Okay. I wouldn't clutter up the disk with the Trinity or the Trinity with the disk. Okay. One of the weaknesses we all have is the belief that once we know something, other people know it or will learn it in much less time than we did because we already know it and it seems so obvious, right? It's so clear in the, on the maps and so clear in the mind. It's so obvious to us now. I had a, uh, uh, I was reading the Harvard Business Review um, recently and there was a fascinating article where they did a test about people's beliefs about what they could teach other people. And um, there was a situation where um, uh, they did a test and they told everybody, okay, um, I want you to, we're going to give you a, a, a song, a, a popular song. And they gave the example of happy birthday, you know, happy birthday to you. And um, I think it's the first I just sang. Um, and they were told they would tap out the rhythm of the song and the person across from them, they would test whether or not they could tap it out in a way that the other person would know what the rhythm was. And they asked the people to predict the likelihood that they could get the rhythm across so the person would guess correctly. The person knowing that they were choosing a popular or well-known song. Um, and the typical average answer from the person who was going to tap was, I think 50% of the people will be able to hear the song that I'm tapping out. Because it's so obvious when you're tapping out a song what you're tapping out. And in fact, the result was 2% of people figured it out. And many of them admitted later, it was a good guess. And they just thought about random songs and said, oh, it's that one, because now I can tell when I put that song with that thing. It wasn't the tapping that convinced them, it was their guess of popular songs. Um, so if you then introduce multiple change priorities all at once, it's really hard, even for the best leaders I know. So don't do it. I think, therefore, I put the Trinity first for two reasons. One. You work in an organization, and no matter how touchy-feely you want to be, and I'm not saying touchy-feely is good or bad, okay? No matter how close to your people you want to be, no matter how important relationships are to you, the first relationship always between you and your directs is the power relationship which derives from your role as their manager. It's not the most valuable role or relationship. It's not the most leverageable. But role power is the most prevalent and unchanging part of your relationship and communications with your directs. And whether you have good or bad communication with any or all of them, you're always going to be their boss. 
Okay, you wear a sign, and the, the sign says, "Watch out! I'm your boss. I could fire you." And if you think you can have a great relationship with your direct, so much so that they'll treat you like a best friend, you're smoking crack. Um, you're not telling your boss everything. And if you are, I would caution you don't do that anymore. Okay. Secondly, most bosses aren't knowledgeable enough with both DISC and the Trinity to implement the Trinity with full DISC customization. Furthermore, if you do DISC first, it will take your team months to get DISC, and some never will, or some will disagree with it on unusual grounds, like, yeah, it's against my spiritual makeup. It's a labeling system. Ah, okay, whatever. Um, and, and then when you do roll out the Trinity, you'll be rolling it out with, a varying, le with varying levels of DISC, and you won't be able to really, truly get a great deal of leverage out of their knowledge of DISC when you deliver the Trinity. So, I'd roll out the Trinity first. I'd get through one-on-ones, and I'd get through feedback. Then, as I was rolling out coaching, which is the rollout of coaching is slower and more episodic and doesn't initially involve everyone, I'd teach the DISC model and then build lessons about it into my managerial style. Okay. And um, we, Wendy and I intend in, in 2013 to roll out a product for managers around DISC, around how to roll out DISC, how to teach it, how to train it, how to inculcate it into your organization. Okay. Number 13. Uh, guidance on a situation without being insubordinate. Guys, this is hard because if you haven't read this question, you're going you're to struggle. Um, but I apologize. We have a standard here that we don't read the question. So I hope you're prepared in advance. First, uh, listener, uh, or the questioner, thanks for the context at the end of the question. It was very helpful to me, and I wish more people would put it in there. Your industry, your level, your boss, your budget, your number of directs, that stuff helps me. There are different answers for EVPs than there are for frontline supervisors. I'm sorry, you may wish that's not true, but it is true, okay? Um, I'll speak more slowly if you're an executive. Um, and, and, and by the way, you're not crazy. You're not, okay? First of all, I wanna start out by saying you've done a bunch of right things. Well done. I'm not saying you, sh I'm not saying you should magically be where you wanna be, but you're, you're doing good stuff, okay? Um, if you think what you're doing is normal, it's not. Normal in your situation is hating one's boss and blaming him while suffering the consequences yourself. So, you're not normal. Frankly, hell, you've done everything right. And the fact is that it still sucks to be you, and that's about a perfect encapsulation of managerial failure masquerading as managerial normalcy, right? Oh, this is what the way it always is. Well, this is managerial failure, but nobody seems to notice it, your meaning from your boss. So my recommendation is, Make a case to your boss. Approach it as a decision brief, not necessarily with the meta structure that we have on our decision brief podcast, but it might be, depending upon how you want to handle it. <coughs> um, you want to approach it as a decision brief in terms of the preparation and the rehearsal and the details. If you want me to look at the brief first, I will. Uh, and what I would do is present options. That's the whole point of the decision brief, okay? And, and the options are regarding your coping behaviors, the stuff you've done, and or his taking control of the situation, or possible changes in the relationship with finance or with his boss, okay? I've never seen a carefully prepared, analytical, low-key, non-emotional, unwhiny, unpersonal, unselfish, 
decision brief received as an insubordinate act. <laughs> now look, I don't know your boss. We're very careful about making recommendations about directs behaviors with their bosses. If your boss is an ill-tempered, unbalanced, lout, then don't do this, just quit. But I get the impression he's not, even though you wish he'd behave differently and you should let that go. Um, um, if you get some traction, I bet you he'll use your deck with his boss. Now, clever me, <laughs> if it were me in your situation, knowing when my boss were, was talking to his boss after I briefed him, I would contrive to be in my skip boss's office shortly after that to see if I could spy my deck on my boss's boss's desk. Not that I would recommend you try to be that clever, but I would. Um, I don't know that I'd ever tell my skip bosses that, that that was my deck. I've seen a lot of my decks used by a lot of other people in my life. That's why manager tools exist. Um, and if I were your cube mate, uh, and a peer of yours or a friend of yours, but I wasn't the direct of your boss, and I knew what I know now, I'd be wanting you to prove to me with specific sites, specific instances, the bit about your boss losing favor with his boss. I hate it, no offense, I hate it when people tell me I think my boss is losing favor with his boss. And when I ask, what do you base that on? Oh, just hints. Well, what hints? Well, it's hard to say. Oh, okay. You know, again, that reminds me of the great, uh, the great uh, philosophy question. Define the universe, be specific, give two examples. Um, most people have no clue what kind of relationship their boss has with their skip level boss. They don't. So I would be cautious about using that, weighting that too heavily. And frankly, it sure as hell wouldn't go on my decision brief. The decision brief is about impacts on the company and on the relationship and on future work abilities. Okay, hope that helps. Number 14, how should you lift your achievements on resume? The way to think about accomplishments, don't think of them as achievements. Ugh, not achievements. Achievements are big. Accomplishments are just stuff you did. The way to think about accomplishments is to ask yourself, what did I intend to do and did I or did I not achieve it? Yes, the best answers are quantified. I intended to increase sales by 30% and I achieved it. I'm not suggesting that you should say, the bullet should not be, I intended to increase sales by 30% and I achieved it. Um, but we're giving you an example of intent and then achievement or accomplishment. But some accomplishments either can't be quantified or you can't remember. So you have three choices in that situation that you're talking about. Number one, estimate. If you don't ever remember a customer going away satisfied, unsatisfied, then that's 100% customer satisfaction. If you think that roughly half the people replied to your survey, then that's 50%. If you're really uncomfortable with estimating, and we see it all the time and it doesn't bother us recruiters, Use a, an approximation symbol, which looks like an equal sign that is squiggly, and it could be a, a squiggly equal sign, or it could be a half of a squiggly equal sign, like a little sigma laid on its side, okay? And that, that rep represents approximately, and it takes 12 less characters on your resume. Second thing, use a proxy. If you worked on a process to improve customer information, how many fewer questions did you get after it was completed? If the customer base stayed the same, but you got fewer questions, then you can say, improve customer information, reduce questions by 40%, or reduce questions by 200 per week. Um, 
that's absolutely a proxy. It doesn't prove that you improve customer information, but it's a reasonable proxy. And I think far too many people don't use proxies. In fact, profits are a proxy for organizational success, folks. If the aim was to develop relationships, how much quicker did you get a response once you had done so? Could be. And number three, you can leave it unquantified. It's your third choice, it's your last choice. If you have 50% more of your accomplishments quantified in your resume, you're doing better than most people on your resumes. And the key is, start recording the accomplishments and the quantifiability now. Let the past go, you can only do what you can do based on number one and number two, and believe that your present will make up for the lack of recording of data and quantification in the past. Hope that helps. Number 15, sales support team scattered all across, virtual team. Um, do we rec can we recommend other ways? Yes, we can. First of all, don't be shy about saying to your people that distance increases the need for communication and for management. And that means you're gonna reach out more and you're going to expect more updates and reports and more technological transparency. And you know, I managed a sales team once and we didn't have email, we didn't have all this technology and I was on the phone constantly. And I had a couple people say, you know, you reach out to us a lot. Yeah, I do. You know, like other bosses, kind of let their people go. I said, yeah, they do. They definitely do. Well, I, I, I'm, and then I, I, and look, I was pretty blunt. You know me, guys. And guys like, well, I was saying, you know, you could let us go a little easier. I say, I was reminded of the time that the, and now look, if there's somebody here in this call who's from the French army, I don't mean to insult you, right? But an American soldier was being interviewed by Congress and an American congressman asked this soldier, well, you know, we do it this way in our army. And in fact, the French do it this way. And the, the soldier said, why would I model myself on the French? Let's model ourselves on the Israelis. They never lose. Guys, I mean, we were the number one sales team in the country and that's why I got promoted. And somebody says to me, well, the other bosses do it differently. Yes, they do. And they march all the way to number two or number three or number nine or number 12, doing it differently. Don't apologize for being a hands-on manager. Some of you feel like you should apologize and I would tell you just don't, just that's the way you manage. Because the problem in the world today is not micromanagement, it's under management. And people again, want to be not managed because it's just easier. The more you see of them, the more you shine lights in dark corners, the more they're gonna get in trouble. People don't like being in trouble with their boss. So we recommend more frequent emails than you would normally send to somebody local and more frequent phone calls than just one-on-ones when a manager, when you're far away. If you're not talking to every def distant direct once a day, that's probably okay, but I wouldn't be talking to them only twice a week. That's not often enough. IMing is fine as long as folks are getting work done. If I see people on IM three or four times in a minute in their desks nest to me, if there are people co-located with me, I'd turn that crap off. It's just, it's, 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 an, it's an intensity and a focus killer. But if you're using it appropriately, then it can be fine. Um, and if people are in the field, if they're not remote, but they're actually in the field, then that IM stuff is actually on their phones and I'd be willing to bet for some of them, it's when they're driving and then you have a safety problem. Uh, again, I'm making that up, may not be true for you. We recommend including communication requirements in with your project tasks. Um, in other words, make sure you when you assign a, uh, a task, you assign reporting of the status of the task as well. Never assign work without assigning the reporting of the work as part of the task itself. We have a cast about that. 
And think about in the RACI matrix, responsibility, accountability, consulting, and informing, which is about projects and keeping people on track and informed and so on, and we have a cast about it. Think about the consulting and informing parts of the RACI matrix. I tell my folks I expected weekly performance reports, slim down to be administratively non-burdensome for them. I, I, an internal web posting could be good, and an email with a standard format could be good. Updating their project status more frequently than co-located teams do, more frequently than other non-co-located teams do, because you want more insight. You want to know how things are going. Projects always have a lot of energy in the beginning, and they fail not at the end, but when people report that they're failing, which happens to be at the end, but they were actually failing in the first few weeks. I recommend video calls, the kind where you can have multiple faces. Um, I've not tried them. I've done a couple of times, but that's not enough data for me to recommend it. But try it and see if the kinks are out of the technology enough the way Skype is today versus in the beginning of Skype, which I wouldn't get on because people are like, ooh, it's free. Yeah, but it sucks. <laughs> I preferred landlines back then. And everybody laughed at me. Oh, you're a Luddite. No, I'm interested in quality of communication. Okay. Uh, I should, we should probably at Manager Tools try one of the Google Hangouts or one of the other uh, things. Having been on Cisco Telepresence, it's really hard to motivate myself to do a multiple face video call without Cisco Telepresence, which is like being surrounded by avatars, real life avatars of people. It's fabulous. Um, I'd also institute standardized document sharing rules where you as a manager can see any work that is, anyone is doing at any time. Don't let them hide stuff on laptops and say, oh, my laptop's not connected to the network and so therefore you can't see it. Dropbox is a great way to do that. Um, I know there are some IT security people who say Dropbox is crazy, but there are other solutions as well. I'd also probably start being very jealous of my own budget and finding ways to bring everybody together once a year or more if you can. We do this at Manager Tools. We love it. Um, and in fact, having said that I'm not scheduled to see Danny in three months makes me think, crap, we need to do something about that, okay? Um, I'm not sure, you ask me in here about keeping everybody engaged, I'm not sure I'd shoot for engagement. That's one of those words I don't like, along with empowered and culture and collaborate. It sounds good, HR uses those a lot because they have a lot of syllables. I love it when people use the word utilize because they just think more syllables are better than the word use. Um, I'd love to have two paragraphs from someone with specifics about what the differences are between an engaged and a, quote, non-engaged workforce. Of course, the moment they wrote down two paragraphs of what the differences are, that would be the answer to the problem as well, because then you would know what behaviors to look for. What I would do, not shoot for engagement, I'd shoot for results. And if I wasn't getting them, I'd analyze what behaviors I thought were missing, and I'd give feedback about improving in those areas. That's what I'd do. Number 16, last one. More examples of what it looks and sounds like to be open to other career opportunities. I don't think anything you do in pursuit of a robust external network could be constituted as disrespectful to your employer, short of bad-mouthing them, which would exclude you from most other people's networks anyway, or illicitly sharing corporate secrets. I'm going to put that differently. There is nothing about getting to know other people and talking to them about their jobs and their companies and their opportunities that is in any way today unprofessional or unbecoming in any way, shape, or form. The idea in the modern world is ludicrous. I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I don't mean to be rude, but I'm going to tell you what I tell my friends, which is what I talked about this week and things I think I think. You are laboring under a false idea. 
that a robust external network in which you talk about other opportunities is somehow bad. It was 50 years ago, it was bad. Today, it's normal. Companies have stopped managing your career. They expect you to manage your career on your own. Talking to somebody else in another company, either to be a better, more knowledgeable employee, or to learn work skills, or to pursue other opportunities, or to just make friends, with or without any agenda about your future, all are all of those things are not only acceptable forms of behavior, they're accepted forms of behavior. Okay? So what can you do? You can have lunch with other people. Uh, you know, I'm amazed people like, well, I don't really like lunch. Oh, you don't eat? No, I eat. I just don't like the idea of having lunch with other people. Oh, okay. Well, sucks to be you. <laughs> it works. Um, professional societies. People don't join. Man, they work. Industry conferences um, where you take your card and you learn how to shake hands and you, you t- say to yourself, I'm going to have five new friends when I leave the conference. Professional journals. Sending an email to a contributor to a professional journal. Hey, I'd like to know more about that. By the way, I know a lot about X. If you ever need any help with X, let me know. And then you use Control-Shift-K and Control-G. If you don't know what that is, listen to our cast about building your network. It'll tell you. It's super easy. Local business clubs like Rotary and the Chamber of Commerce in the U.S. It, by the way, if you're international and you have names of clubs that are local, service clubs, and you want to share them with us so we can expand what examples I use, please do so. Asking questions of your neighbors and your friends about what they do and why they like it with an eye towards comparing it to your work. That's completely normal. Subscriptions to major publications to learn of new companies in your area or in your field or in a related field. For heaven's sake, recruiters. We've got a couple of casts on that. Recruiters, yes. Have relationship with recruiters. It's normal. It's professional. Every senior executive in your firm knows several and talks to them on a regular basis. Everything I'm recommending is kosher. Not doing these things is dumb. <coughs> and that's it. Wendy, we've got some emails, right? Okay. What are your thoughts on giving holiday what are your thoughts on giving holiday gifts to your supervisor and or your subordinates? Oh God. <laughs> I, I, I gotta tell you, um, today I sent out a things I think I think. And in it there was a a section uh, where one of the items said I was talking to a pretty senior executive or pretty senior manager and this situation occurred and a person wrote to me and accused me of being a chauvinist because this person couldn't find anywhere in my story that the female the clearly female person I was talking about her attractiveness would matter because I used the secondary form of the word pretty to mean fairly high level and I was accused of being a chauvinist. I would be worried today in a large company that a holiday gift, if you chose the wrong wrapping paper, would be perceived as a Christmas gift and maybe insulting to someone's non-Christian religion. So my recommendation is don't do it. Now I'm going to tell you something guys, this is equivalent to our guidance about don't give your boss feedback. Somebody's going to write me and say, well, I know my boss and we've been friends for years and I'm going to give him a holiday gift. Okay, knock yourself out. But the fact is, today, in the modern world, if you give a holiday gift between 15 December and 25 December, the assumption is it's a Christmas gift. And there are people who believe that you're going to insult their religion. And, uh, you know, that's not good. And, you, you know, there's a discussion right now about holiday trees versus Christmas trees, for heaven's sakes. Save your money. Donate to charity. Be polite. Give of your time. Have a party. 
that doesn't have a Christmas theme, if in fact you're Christian or not Christian, um, and don't. Save yourself the difficulty. And wish them well and say, have a wonderful time. Please say hello to your wife. Say hello to your husband. Give your kids a hug for me. I, I look forward to seeing them sometime soon. That's what you do. And I hate giving that answer, but that's what I would tell my friends because there are landmines out there and you just can save your money. God, I'm gonna get emails about being Scrooge. Oh well, I don't care, I'm right. Okay, when former directs who are now working for your peers make negative comments about how their current boss, your peer, run their department, should you A, shut down the conversation and tell them to speak with your boss, B, talk to your peer, or C, try to help the former direct navigate their new role. And this person goes on to say, not talking about illegal or unethical behavior, simply bad managing from the perspective of the direct. The answer is A, shut down the conversation, tell them to speak with the boss. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't not pay attention if, if Wendy and I are bosses and Danny used to work for me and now she works for Wendy and Danny comes and runs her mouth about Wendy. First of all, Danny's too smart to do that. Um, I, when Danny runs Wendy down, I would certainly pay attention and I would know that that was what was being said about, about Wendy. But I would also say, dude, don't talk to me. I can't do anything. I'm not going to go talk. To, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't go talk to Wendy, period. I'm not going to do it. You need to talk to him. And if you don't have the stones to talk to your boss about this, don't think you're going to use my peer relationship with him or her in order to talk to him for you. Fix the problem. Don't come talk to me. And then when they say, oh, they're venting, so we'll let this be a lesson to you. You used to work for me. Would you have vented to me when you were boss? No. You know, venting, not so good. Vent to your spouse. By the way, though, be careful. Don't vent to your spouse when you first get home because all they'll do is hate your boss and they'll take your side all the time and then they'll say one day, go give your boss a piece of your mind. <laughs> and you'll know then at that time that they're wrong and then you'll realize you probably caused them to do that. So no, don't try to help your former navigate direct their new role. I mean, you could certainly say, I, I'm not suggesting you say good luck with that, but you could say, hey, look, I'm not the person to talk to. If it's a big enough issue to go talk to your boss, go talk to your boss. Other than that, deal with it. And I, I see, you know, there are a lot of you who know when you call to complain to me, you send me an email about your boss, I say, deal with it. You know, you can always quit. Um, not, again, probably not a popular answer, but the right one. Um, okay, I got an email. Pete, you're welcome. Uh, here we go. What actions are best when my boss, it's always about bosses, what have we got? This is not direct tools. This is manager tools. I love it. What actions are best when my boss and his boss both think the MT methods take too much time? E.g., they think monthly one-on-ones are enough. Okay, now this is a good question. This is a really good question. First of all, they're your bosses, so you don't fall on your sword. Okay, don't do it. If you are given specific... Now look, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying this, and I don't even care if I know who your bosses are. If I found out they're doing this, I'd call them idiots. And I'd say, please, let me give you your money back. You can keep your subscription, but let me give you your money back because I don't want your money. Um, if your boss and his boss takes too you know, they're, they're, I mean, literally, they're idiotic because we've got data. A half an hour a week is too much time. You mean, what is that, 24 hours a year, only a only a half of which 12 hours a year is spent listening to your directs. It's an hour a month listening to your directs and it's too much. Yeah, whatever happened to the line in the corporate 
guidance thing about collaboration and up and down communication and you know listening with two ears and talking with one mouth but anyway um but look if your boss puts pressure on you about one-on-ones don't fall on your sword first thing you do is defend it. Say, look, I really think this is working. I'm investing in the relationship. I don't know my people well enough. I'm trying to figure figure out their strengths and weaknesses. I'm trying to figure out who's good at what. I feel like we've got some weakness in the team, but I can't really see where it's coming from. I also really want to capitalize on my strong guys. And the more time I spend with them individually, the better. I feel like I'm, I'm spreading the field more. This is actually what I would say. And, and the more I know about my team, the more I'll get out of them. I found the bosses who know more about me get more out of me. I know that I'm, I need to communicate differently with Bob than with Terry. And I would pick two people on my team that are completely different. And I would say, the more I learn about Bob and Terry, the more I know that I have to tell Bob one thing this way and Terry one thing that way. And I can't do that just by guessing. I have to spend time listening to them and talking to them. Okay? So I would defend it. And then I would quietly keep doing it. If I got told again, uh, and I got told with a little bit of a, a threat, you know, a little bit of, by the way, I'm your boss kind of thing, I'd probably say, okay. And I go to once every two weeks, and I might stop calling them one-on-ones. Okay? When they ask me, am I doing one-on-ones anymore? I say, no, not. Now, some of you would say, well, that's unethical. No, it's not. I'm not doing one-on-ones anymore. I'm just meeting with my folks every other week. In fact, I've modified the format a little bit because you were right. I can make it better. And I keep doing them. And now look, and guys, this is me. And this is why Manager Tools is not Mark Horseman's home run hall of fame. What I would do at this point in my career, or frankly, when I was 27 or 28, if I had bosses tell me twice that takes too much time and I knew damn well they'd wrong, I'd find a new boss. And that's part of the reason why I went to Procter & Gamble, because I know, I knew, that they didn't have any bosses like that, because the caliber of people are better. And I knew it wouldn't hurt on my resume. I know that's probably not what a lot of you want to hear, but that's what I would do. And if they told me, you will stop, I probably would stop. If I was given a direct order to stop, I'd say, you're right, I'm sorry, I apologize, I'll stop doing them immediately. And I'd probably, if they thought monthly one-on-ones were enough, I'd probably do a monthly one-on-one. And I'd get my resume ready, and I'd deliver results, and I'd go out and do a search, and I'd find a better job, and, I'd have, and then I'd buy their company 10 years later and say, now you work for me. That's just me. Okay. Would Mark suggest using the question, what extracurricular reading have you done in the last two years and why? Oh, oh okay. I said, I think I just said that. Is this a trick question? And then it goes on. It goes on, the, the, the word after the quotation marks of uh, last two years and why is capitalized. And so I thought it was a new sentence. He says, okay, would Mark suggest using the question, what extracurricular reading have you done? What extracurricular reading have you done in the last two years and why? In interviews with people with more experience under their belt. If not, is there a question he prefers to elicit the same behavior in experienced applicants? No, no, I, I, I perhaps misread your question. I don't remember anybody off the top of your head, Wendy, Danny, what question that was. Was it fairly? Oh, here it is. Now I got lucky. Number five. Um, let me just see. I work in an organization. Yeah, hard to learn. Yeah, re, re, recent college. Yeah, you said recent, recent college. You said recent college graduates. I'm assuming this is the per. This is from somebody else?
Uh, it depends entirely on whether or not I thought self-development was really important. Uh, I would, no, okay. You're asking me would I do it or would I suggest using it. I can't answer that because I don't know what you're screening for. Um, I, um, it's rare that I find people who have achieved at high levels in the things that I'm looking for, largely people skills, um, that don't develop themselves. If you really have grown a lot, you're pushing the envelope because organizations have a natural inertia toward enthalpy, right? And they just, everything, everything is slowing down. All things are decaying. Um, and so somebody who continues to achieve at high levels is by definition probably a voracious learner and reader. And they're curious. Um, I, it's, it's almost, if I've had a really hard business trip, it's almost fun to sit next to an incurious person because they're not going to ask me any questions. And if I'm really tired, it's like, oh, good, an underperformer. <laughs> I don't, you know, they're not going to ask me any questions, or if they do, they're not going to be interesting. And I'll tell them that I sell insurance, and then they'll leave me alone. Um, uh, so I don't. Um, it would depend on what you were screening for. Um, but but that said, if you feel like you want to know the well-roundedness of somebody, and you can't tell it. I would not substitute this. If I only had an hour to interview them, this would not be in my, my first hour question. But if I had six or seven hours, by definition, I would, I would say two or three times, if I didn't want to ask this question, I would say two or three times I was reading X or I was reading Y, I was reading Z. And I would look to see, whoever's not muted is making too much noise. Um, I would look to see whether or not they picked up and said, oh, I was reading X, or I was reading Y, or I was reading Z. And I might say something like, have you ever read X? And see what they said. And if somebody says no to a popular book, in my case, it would be Drucker. It might also be popular fiction, although it wouldn't be Fifty Shades of Grey. And let me say something else. There's a, this real popular book out there, Fifty Shades of Grey. You're nuts, folks, if you're telling professionals that you're reading those books. I got to tell you something. You're nuts. I had a friend show me that book. There are a lot of psychologists. These books are detrimental to women. They are, they are not positive to women. And look, I haven't read the book, so don't. But I got to tell you something. Some male professional telling me, oh, yeah, I'm reading Fifty Shades of Grey. Man, you're asking for an HR investigation. Even though, of course, I just got accused of being chauvinist. The stupidest thing I ever heard in my life. Um, so I might. Um, and I'm certainly, if you feel strongly that that kind of extracurricular, that kind of self-development is important, the, the, the simple fact is extracurricular reading is the lowest uh, investment in self-development. Now, if somebody says, no, I'm not doing any extracurricular reading because I'm getting another master's, I'd be like, well, okay, that's fine. There's self-development. And if you want to tell me more about what you do and what you're looking for and the kind of people, I'll come up with a better question for you. And you can add it to your list of standardized questions, assuming you use our interview creation tool. And if you're not doing that, I don't know why you wouldn't be. <laughs> what man Last question that I have so far. Wendy, is there any more after the management pitfalls one? Uh, well, so, yeah, well, we got 10 more minutes. We got, ten, we got 10 minutes. Send them along. What management pitfalls are more likely to be encountered by a software development manager? <laughs> well, that's easy. Managing software developers. <laughs> that's the management pitfall. Um, uh, it's a good one, though. It's a really good question. Um, 
lack of communication, lack of knowing your people because your people are going to tend to be fairly reserved and are going to resist your questions. Um, and, and software development has a little bit of cult of you have to leave me alone so I can stay in the zone for hours. Even though, I, I'm not kidding, the last two times I walked through a software development cube or office area, 30 to 40% of the people who were in that area were playing computer games and these were not computer game developer companies and they were all taking breaks. I'm sorry, twice, 30 to 40%? No, that's not an issue, you're goofing off. Oh, it's too hard to code for eight hours straight. Yeah, but it's always happening. And the other thing is um, lack of communication downward from your boss to the point where you're left being given stuff at the last minute. And I think I would encourage you to over-report to your boss and encourage as much communication as possible proactively. Um, and, and, and if I can, I'll just ask the questioner, if you wouldn't mind, I think it's a brilliant question and, and I don't have time to think it through and give you a two or three part answer. And I, um, but I will tell you it's around communication, both up and down. Um, and if you, if you want that answered next time, we'll answer it next time. Okay. And I want to get to these other two if I can, but good question. Don't, don't think that I'm shorting you. I just, I, I can talk for half an hour and still not have cogent thoughts yet. Okay. Next question. How do you advise a young 30 year old person to manage their career in an organization that doesn't do annual goals and annual performance appraisals? Well, okay. I, I don't know. Um, this year, the president decided to stop doing annual performance appraisals. My, my career path may stagnate. That may or may not be true. I, I would advise the same thing that I advise to the person about you know, should I be looking if my job is suddenly stagnated? I do the four part thing, I deliver results. I, I, um, I would be willing to bet that somebody, depending upon, you didn't tell them how many people there are in the firm, um, but if it's a big firm, I suspect they're going to start them up again, but they're just redoing them. And the president had the ability to say, I want to stop. Um, and frankly, most organizations would be better off if they did and they just came up with a number for salary for next year because that's all anybody hears in their reviews. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, I would start, I would get my resume ready, I'd develop my network and I'd see what was out there and then I'd deliver results and I'd pay attention to what opportunities existed there and here. And, and I, don't, I wouldn't follow my sword in an organization regarding its lack of annual performance appraisals um, alone if I liked the culture and I liked the people and I liked the work and I liked the industry. Um, but it would certainly be something I would consider. I don't know enough about the culture and the boss to know whether or not it's a make or break deal, but I suspect it's not yet. Um, now, you say you're used to large organizations with job boards and so on. There's nothing wrong with saying I'd be better off at a larger organization. Nothing wrong with that. Um, you say you're nervous about your future. I, I wouldn't disagree, dude. I totally would not disagree with you. And I would say that's not the only factor I would use. And I, and, I, and I do what every professional ought to be doing nowadays, which is keeping your other options open, keeping your network warm for that moment where you need to make it hot and see what options exist out there and compare apples to apples rather than the potential for a future rotten apple against an unknown, which is not a comparison at all, it's a guess. Okay, last question. I'm interviewing for a higher level position at our competitor. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> I've not told my boss I don't, because I believe I don't have anything without an offer. Good. I've heard that before. However, he is friends with one of the interviewers, and I worry about him hearing it from somebody other than me. What would be a professional explanation for not telling myself if this happens? 
I'm glad you asked for a professional explanation because the non-professional explanation is none of your damn business, boss. Um, um, you didn't say, <coughs> you didn't say what kind of relationship you have with your boss, which generally I'd like to know in this situation. But I think the professional explanation is, look, it, it's part of my, you're not responsible for managing my career. I am. I'm always looking at opportunities. This happened gradually. The competitor asked. I'm behaving ethically. I'm certainly not sharing information. There's no requirement that I share. Uh, in the past, I've known people who have shared where there was either retribution, even if the boss didn't do it, there were other people who knew, and there was a taint put on a person's career. I didn't think that was fair. That was fair, and I haven't decided whether or not to go there, even if I got an offer. And I asked them to keep it confidential. The fact that you know worries me a little bit that somebody didn't keep it confidential. That said, I won't deny it. And then leave it up to your boss. I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't want to work for a boss who, who took it out on me. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind if he said, well, I'm hurt. And I'd say, boss, I get that. And I'm sorry. And I think, no, no offense, boss. But it provided the relationship was good. Um, and I've only had one boss in my life I didn't have a good relationship with. Um, Provided the relationship was good, I said, you're right, and roles reversed, I'd feel the same way. And yet, roles reversed, you'd probably do the same thing and keep it quiet. Um, that's a good question. We should have a podcast about it, about the actual wording. Because I've discovered over and over again that when I tell people generally what you want to do is X, the implementation of that sometimes is kind of clumsy. And clumsy can be, clumsy can, can be perceived as misleading or, or duplicitous. We don't want that. Um, but it's, a, it's, 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 uh, it's fair that you have kept it quiet. You're doing the right thing. If your friend tells your boss your friend is really not your friend, and if you, find out, if you find out after the fact, the boss says, oh, actually, Jared told me a month ago. I, I, slight kudos to your boss, but boy, watch your back with Jared. Okay, Wendy, is that it? Okay, a, a couple of just uh, minor points, guys, at the end. I was asked to mention a couple of things, and we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, first of all, thanks as always. Thanks for being part of our community. We love what we do, and we're glad that there are people who are willing to listen. Um, it's free. Uh, not this call, but all the podcasts are free. Um, we've just rolled out the uh, Trinity Rollout email series. About 600 of you have signed up for it. We love that. We would love to hear whether you like it or don't like it. As a general rule, the first offering of anything is not going to be great. We're going to improve upon it, so don't hesitate to send us a note uh, at customerservice at manager-tools.com. Or if you know one of our email addresses and you want to talk to us privately, please send us an email and let us know. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever. Uh, we are definitely planning, Wendy and I, I think in the Q1 of next year, we'll be, we'll be going and scrubbing it and tightening it up and make it better. And the more input we get, the better off we're going to be. For those of you overseas, uh, I'll be in Sydney the 13th and 14th of May and Shanghai the 16th of May, and then I'll do that same sort of trip in October. So we'll be coming to Sydney and Shanghai twice. Um, I happen to love the Sydney trip because so many great people come. Um, I don't, is, is this one of those times, Wendy, that we chose to make it easy for Sydney people to be on this call? Or no? This is really more a U.S. call. Oh, it's lunchtime. Yeah, you're right. It is. I'm thinking London. I'm, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, good. If we have any, yeah, if we have any Aussies on here, oi, oi, oi. Okay, thanks. Um, we have London, 28 and 29 January. What Maggie told me to say we have a couple more slots still open, which is a little unusual at this point. I will be in Frankfurt the, tw the 10th of June this year. So if you're in Europe or if you know somebody in Europe, we're going to, going to Germany rather than just going to London. Um, 
this is corny, but we have a screensaver now that's available on the website. I don't know where exactly. You could probably type in screensaver in the search. And it's available for download, and the screensaver is Horseman's Laws. And lastly, Wendy and I are in the process, I think Danny's helping as well, with our frequently asked questions. Uh, we have been woefully under supportive of you guys in terms of the most frequently asked questions given at Manager Tools. It's going to be a core part of the new website. And if you have frequently asked questions that you want to be included in the list, would you just send us a note and say, here are the questions I think that I answer from people all the time, or here are the questions I had when I was first starting. The more input we get about that kind of stuff, the better. And of course, because you guys are a special part of the community, the core part of the community in our minds, send us a mail and let us know what you want us to cover in podcasts. It's hard, but every once in a while we have a case where a question comes up and it fills a gap that we don't see because sometimes you don't ask the fish about the water. And, uh, and if, if we can do it, if we can fit it into the rollout of podcasts, we will. And for those of you who are wondering, my knee is fine. Um, frustrating, but fine. I think that's it. Are we done, Wendy? Guys, everybody, God bless you in your travels over the holidays. Don't consider that a religious statement. Um, and you're well. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know how we can help. We, it means a great deal to us that you care enough to listen to what we have to say. And it means a lot that what we have to say is making your lives better and the lives of your directs better. Uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Take care. Good night.